You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider. Another busy week in North Carolina politics. Uh, Lots to talk about. We'll get to the latest on uh, Gen X, uh, some departures in the legislature, uh, some interesting uh, Facebook and online posts that are getting a particular legislature in a legislator in a little bit of trouble. um, And we'll also uh, talk about some other developments this week. Um, But first, I wanted to uh, run down some of the uh, big stories of the week that uh, I just want to touch on briefly. Um, the first, obviously, the uh, big national story around Facebook and Cambridge Analytica this week has gotten uh, Tom Tillis, U.S. Senator, and the uh, NCGOP involved because they had paid that company uh, for some campaign work in the past, still learning a little bit more about exactly what type of work they did and how that influenced uh, particularly the 2014 Senate race here in North Carolina. So uh, check out some of the stories by Brian Murphy and Lynn Bonner on that topic if you want to learn more. Uh, Also big news this week on the State Board of Elections. Uh, We finally have one of those um, and they held their first meeting uh, earlier this week uh, with the uh, eight members, four from each party uh, who took quite a while to pick their ninth member. Their first order of business uh, was a rather challenging one for a party divided along or for a board divided along party lines, uh, and that was to find an unaffiliated uh, ninth person and send two names of two people who fit that bill uh, to Governor Roy Cooper. Um, and after uh, deadlocking a number of occasions with different uh, ideas they had, um, the uh, Democrats were successful in getting uh, Damon Sercosta on the slate. He's a uh, the executive director of the A.J. Fletcher Foundation um, and fairly closely aligned uh, in the past to some left-leaning causes, uh, so pretty solid uh, uh, Democratic-leaning person, even if he is unaffiliated. The other person they chose uh, was a former Supreme Court Justice Burley Mitchell, um, who is also unaffiliated but uh, had been appointed by uh, Democratic politicians over his judicial career. Out of those, uh, Governor uh, did not go with uh, who the Republican Party was pushing him to pick, which was uh, Burley Mitchell, and he instead appointed Damon Sercosta, which has prompted uh, some discussion among Republicans of a constitutional amendment to uh, go instead to the original version of the elections board law that would not have had a ninth member from an unaffiliated uh, standpoint. Uh, And so essentially where we're at now, uh, we have five members of the election board who uh, lean to the left in some way or another and four that lean to the right, uh, which is not all that different from the uh, three and two uh, Democratic uh, breakdown that uh, would have been the case under the old elections board law. Of course, now the board also handles ethics commission sort of stuff. Um, and we'll see if that constitutional amendment comes about and if it has the support to pass, um, if it does. But that'll all probably, if it happens, happen in the short session. So we can look ahead to that in the future. Um, other big stories this week, uh, a lot of discussion around State Representative Beverly Boswell, uh, who uh, hasn't been in the news that much. She's a first-term uh, State House member from uh, Dare County in the northeastern corner of the state, uh, and she was in the news for several different things this week, Andy, that you wrote about. So give us the rundown of uh, why uh, Beverly Boswell's in a, a bit of uh, political hot water right now. Well, it all started last week when... Uh, National Walkout Day happened. Many high school students and some middle school and elementary school students decided to uh, walk out to protest gun violence. Last Friday, Ms. Bo- Representative Boswell posted on her Facebook page that she called the principal of a school that held an assembly. 
Uh, she had heard that they were holding an assembly to talk about violence or as part of, uh, you know, part of the National Walkout Day. And that turned out to be uh, not quite accurate. The principal told us and uh, told her that it wasn't an assembly to talk about guns or violence. He considers himself very non-political. It was an assembly to simply honor the victims of the Parkland school shooting. So she made headlines for posting about her phone conversation with this principal, who's not in her district, and referring to the students at his school in Roxborough as, uh, quote, Tide Pod eaters. Uh, or th- she said, I think to be exact, so the schools, so the students that were eating Tide Pods last week run your school this week? And to be clear, there's no uh, news stories that say this particular school was home to students who were eating Tide Pods. That was just that national trend that uh, got a lot of media attention. <laughs> That's right. She's suggesting that uh, students who may not make smart decisions are you know, uh, influencing what school administration does on a daily basis. And the principal spoke with us and said that's not true. Uh, in fact, his the whole reason he called an assembly and honored the victims with a moment of silence and by reading their names was to avoid walkouts and to avoid political statements. Uh, so she made headlines for that. And then this week, uh, as a result of that, we discovered that uh, as a result of that story getting out to parts of eastern North Carolina um, and elsewhere. Yeah, it uh, has a tendency with, with news stories is you hear one thing about a politician and suddenly you get calls with like, did you know this other thing about this same person? Exactly. Full disclosure, that's what happened here. Uh, Monday or Tuesday, uh, we got an email from someone I believe that lives on the coast, I think in her district, saying, hey, did you know she refers to herself as registered nurse? but isn't listed as one. And the North Carolina Board of Nursing has a page where you can verify who is and is not a registered nurse. It's a, a, you know, to become a registered nurse, you need at least an associate's degree, which typically takes two years, or you can go to undergrad for four years, and then you have to pass an exam. So it's a a regulated uh, profession. And so you can go to this website and click verify and put in someone's name to see if they are, in fact, a registered nurse. Uh, And we did that with her name, and it didn't come up. So we emailed them, and the nursing board told us, uh, as a matter of fact, just last week, uh, which, depending on when you're listening to this, would be whenever the national walkout was, they contacted her and said, hey, we see you're referring to yourself as a registered nurse on your campaign website and your Facebook page, page, please take it down. Well, when they did that, she took the reference off of her campaign website, but not her Facebook. So when we found out about it and we corresponded with the nursing board, they said, they told us that they thought she had taken down everything. So we went to her Facebook page and it was still there a week later, almost. And we reached out to her We reached out to the nursing board and her opponent and come to, we asked her, you know, why would you take down the reference uh, last week when the board contacted you, but not on, on your campaign website, but not on your Facebook? And she said it, quote unquote, fell through the cracks and that it's a mistake that a campaign volunteer made. And she took no credit for it or no responsibility. She, pl- she blamed a volunteer uh, named Luke. And when we asked who Luke was, she declined to give us information and said that she didn't want us to, quote, harass him 
so that's where we were with that. Um, so story comes out that the nursing board has told us, t- told her twice to stop referring to herself as a registered nurse. And she says it was a, st- it was a simple mistake, but now the story has gone, um, internationally i think i saw it on the daily mail i saw it on fox news i saw it on the hill yeah this is you know obviously registered nurses uh put in a lot of uh time and money into getting registered as a nurse and a lot of times they get rather upset if you refer to people who are not nurses who happen to be wearing scrubs in some sort of uh, medical profession with less training required uh and so i think this sort of story has has resonated very well with people in that world and that and i forgot to mention that earlier she is a uh, self-described medical assistant and phlebotomist. And a phlebotomist is someone essentially who draws blood. They're trained to find veins and collect blood, um, typically in labs, hospitals, and things like that. Uh, but that industry is not regulated. You do not have to have uh, uh, any sort of, pass any sort of exam. Um, there is a certificate that many employers want you to get, uh, but it's not a state-regulated thing. So, and you pointed out that was, you know whether or not someone wears scrubs doesn't necessarily mean that they're a nurse she fell back on that and said uh you know he my my volunteer who made this mistake saw that i wear scrubs to work and just assumed that i was a nurse and um so that that's what she's claiming and uh as of today which is friday uh her primary opponent the current uh Currituck county uh board of commissioners chairman it's a lot of words but um his name is Bobby Hannig, and he came out with a statement saying that uh, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek that voters in District 6, House District 6, should support the truthful and honest and legitimate Republican candidate in that race. So um, that's where we are now uh, with her. She responded by saying that he's not a true conservative like her, um, but the story about her claiming to be a nurse uh, has sort of gone viral. I know yeah, that's an over, overused word, but it's true. And it does seem like it's going to be an issue in her fairly contested primary. I mean, Beverly Boswell, one of the most conservative members, I think, in the North Carolina House, uh, has a challenge from Hainig, who's also a Republican, also touting his conservative credentials. Uh, but she's uh, angered some people out in her district on the Outer Banks because she supported the end of the plastic bag ban, which some of the local leaders out there had supported. So that's become an issue. This will also be an issue, and that's definitely one of the hot uh, primaries to watch as we go into May. So uh, thanks for that, Andy. Uh, next, I want to turn to another coming and going in the uh, legislature. Uh, Lauren, you wrote this week about uh, State Senator Angela Bryant, also from uh, Eastern North Carolina, uh, Uh, about her future plans. So what's uh, Senator Bryant up to? Yes, so Senator Bryant, um, over the weekend, I do believe actually on Sunday, March 18th, resigned her seat in the North Carolina Senate. And uh, Bryant is a Democrat from Nash County, um, and she's been in the House and the Senate for quite some time and before then was on the UNC Board of Governors, too. Um, And so she is um, stepping down to actually take an appointment from Governor Roy Cooper to the State Parole Board. Um, and Bryant had already announced that she was retiring her seat and wasn't going to run for re-election because in redistricting, her district got reshaped and is now more conservative-leaning, and so it was going to be harder for her to win re-election anyway. Um, so she was already done getting ready to figure out her future, and her future came a little bit earlier than she expected. I would. Christmas came early this year. Yeah, I, I would really. Yeah, Christmas is a good way to term it because you know, lawmakers make about you know fourteen thousand dollars a year. Um, 
Pro Board makes significantly more than so that. 116000 yeah. I do believe it's $116,595 to be exact. Just be exact. Um, so big pay raise for Senator Bryant. And um, I just heard from her actually overnight. And they haven't picked her successor yet or they haven't picked who they want to appoint. The Halifax County um, Democrats um, haven't decided. Um, or I should say it's, it's a group of Democrats from Halifax County Nash County, all over there in eastern North Carolina, um, they're going to be meeting on Monday morning to decide her to decide who to appoint next. Um, right now, the only person who she knows of that is seeking the appointment is Judge Toby Fitch, um, who is actually running for um, state senate anyway. Yeah, former legislator, right? Yes, former housemaker, uh, housemaker, house member. <laughs> he made. The Sorry, house. Judge. <laughs> Sorry, Judge Fitch, um, house member. Um, and so she said he'll likely be the one to be appointed, and then Governor Cooper would, um, you know, sign off on that appointment pretty quickly. Uh, so that's another update on the coming. Yeah. News. So that would allow him to run as an incumbent yes. for legislature, which would be somewhat of Help an advantage in a pretty competitive and, and district. And Fitch is really well known in the district because he has been a, a judge in that district. I can't remember if it's Superior Court or Court of Appeals, or he's been a judge there for quite some time and represented the district as a House member. Um, so, and he is almost 72, so he was going to hit the mandatory retirement age of a judge anyway. So that's why he decided to run for Senate instead. All right. And the other topic you had this week that was fun was uh, industrial hemp. Uh, North Carolina has a uh, pilot program, I guess it's termed, to uh, start allowing the uh, cultivation of uh, industrial hemp on farms, uh, which, of course, uh, close cousin of uh, the marijuana plant, but is supposedly cannot get you high and can be used in a lot of uh, different uh, types of fibers and um, different products. So it's an interesting cash crop, and uh, some people are growing it. So what's the latest, and uh, who's growing it, and how? Yeah, so the latest is is there's been a lot of interest in this pilot program. Um, the North Carolina Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services gave an update to um, a study commission in the General Assembly yesterday, and you know we found out since this pilot program started, I mean it was authorized in 2015, 2016, and you know people are just starting to grow. Um, in the first season alone, they had 100 people sign up to be licensed or apply to be licensed, and since then they've gotten more. So I think um, since it started, they had 149. Licenses, licensed growers in North Carolina, and that's a lot of acreage. I want to say over 17,000 acres. I don't have the exact acreage in front of me. Um, but so they're getting a lot of interest, and in, you know, like Colin said up top. Yeah. And your story said that it was a very high interest in uh, industrial hemp, which I mean, you claim Freud- you did not put in there deliberately. <laughs> I did not. Um, no, sir, I did not. Um, but, um, you know, they said. You know, as you said up top, Colin, it's it's a close relative of marijuana, but the level of THC in industrial hemp is so low. I think what the standard right now in North Carolina is they're really looking at point. 3% THC. Yeah, I was told by one of the hemp advocates that in order to get high off industrial hemp, you'd have to smoke a blunt the size of a telephone pole. And that's <laughs> that's, uh, that's a pretty big blunt. Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a really big blunt, you guys. Um, so, you know, th- there are still some concerns from lawmakers because uh, these licensed growers, you know, they have to have their crop tested. So the Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services is going out and testing these crops. Um, each grower has two chances to hit that. 0.3%. And some of them were coming in a little bit high, you know, 0. 0.4, 0.5%, nothing like too crazy. Um, but there was one grower in particular whose crop came in at 2% THC, which is a lot. I still don't think that would, I think that would be a 
pretty big size blunt to get you high, but it's over what, you know, what they were looking for. Um, so they, they have to destroy that crop, but when they were going to go destroy that crop, the crop disappeared overnight. Hmm. Uh, so <laughs> that's not suspicious at all. <laughs> yeah. So lawmakers were really concerned about not only the destruction of, you know, the industrial hemp, cause you have to burn it. So you have to collect it and then burn it. Um, and then, you know, how people get notified about, you know, their crop needing to be destroyed. And so they're coming up with new protocols just so no one else has their crop go missing overnight. Um, and so, you know, they're still interested in it and they're still making the, pro- they're still moving the program forward because um, there's a lot of research opportunities they're doing. I know one study that they're looking at is using industrial hemp instead of soybean mule or grain or something like that in poultry feed. So there's a lot of uses for this and they're still trying to find, you know, all these research capabilities for industrial hemp, but lawmakers are still kind of worried about yeah. the amount of it THC. It sounded like they were a little worried about that THC level. Uh, level They're issue. very, I mean, and you know, marijuana is not legalized in North Carolina. Have Probably they, won't be anytime soon. No. Have they heard about alcohol? I hear that <laughs> stuff causes lots of problems. Yes. <laughs> so they, uh, yeah, so they're still worried about these levels of THC and if people could potentially be slipping marijuana into the crop. and Because yeah, it looks the egg. same yes, grow-wise. It is. Yeah, yeah. so you, that, that was the worry when they rolled out with this. was If you put a big field of hemp and then in the middle you stick a couple pot plants, would people notice? Well, mm-hmm. I actually wrote about that about two years ago, and it turns out that if you try and do that, if you try and get sneaky and put marijuana inside of your hemp fields, it actually destroys the marijuana because the hemp, I guess is stronger or something yeah, and so it pollinates, like pollinates it, or something and it causes it to basically become worthless it takes away all the thc so you'd be a very stupid criminal if you <laughs> attempted to do that <laughs> yeah so i mean and and commi- uh, agriculture commissioner steve troxler was the, on hand yesterday and you know he told them there's you know no one slipping marijuana into their crops so that's not a concern he has his concern though is about how uh, federal how at the federal level uh, they still classify industrial hemp as marijuana, so there has been some, you know, troubles with getting seeds into North Carolina. Um, so he's really hoping that Congress will act and you know show them that or tell the DEA to not classify it as marijuana. Yeah, probably uncomfortable with him as a Republican politician to have to sign his name on like a marijuana seed request yeah. form or something. Yeah. So. All right. Thanks for that, Lauren. Um, other pressing environmental issues aside from hemp, uh, Gen X had some more developments this week, as it does, seems to have uh, just about every week. Will, you've been following this closely. Uh, what's new in the uh, chemicals in the water department? Yeah, well, there's a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, uh, I was at a panel at uh, NC Central last night with some uh, environmentalist folks and environmental professors and legal experts uh, talking about it. And uh, 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 one of them from uh, from Duke compared uh, trying to kind of keep up with this to whack-a-mole. You know, he said every time, you know, we kind of wrap our heads around one of these chemicals and figure out a way to detect it in the water and, you know, try and filter it out of the water, you know, a ton more pop up. Somebody comes up with a new chemical. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, everyone knows that the state has been you know, kind of almost cut on its heels with this Gen X thing, you know, had no idea that this stuff was in the water for so long. And part of the problem is you can only figure out if something's in the water if you know to look for it. And uh, Gen X, you know, is uh, kind of an unknown chemical. We didn't know that it even existed, let alone that it, you know, might have been used here. So, uh, you know, everyone at the state level is still trying to figure out how to deal with this. Uh, DEQ is still trying to get some more money from the legislature. Um, 
you know, people remember back in January and February, the House did approve the money that DEQ had been asking for. Then the Senate uh, changed up the bill and took all that money out, uh, you know, kind of put some money to other places. And the, the two sides just couldn't couldn't come to a conclusion. Uh, made a lot of people pretty angry. Uh, this isn't really a partisan thing. You know, everyone agrees that, hey, we shouldn't be worried about our drinking water in North Carolina. Um, so the, uh, the House, uh, they have a committee that's kind of been taking the lead on this, led by uh, Representative Ted Davis from out in Wilmington. They met again uh, this week, um, and he mentioned that uh, he doesn't have uh, new legislation ready to go because he's been, uh, you know, kind of working a little bit behind the scenes with some people in the Senate to just make sure that whenever, you know, they do put out some legislation that it's going to, you know, be something that the Senate can get on board with or at least can work with, and, you know, maybe there's some room for a compromise. Um, some of the environmentalists we're talking about, uh, they've asked the legislature to create basically an observatory, a group of scientists who will stay on top of these things and look out for stuff and kind of inform DEQ, like, hey, like, we've been hearing about these new sorts of chemicals. You should check out for them. Uh, apparently, it's based on a model that's used in Europe that has worked pretty well there. So we'll see how that's going. Um, another interesting thing at the committee was they were asking about what it would take for the state to just shut down this plant outside of Fayetteville uh, that's owned by Chemours. Because they keep having like little leaks here and there, even though they've mostly taken action to avoid stuff getting into the Cape Fear River. Yeah, um, obviously the company is in hot water with the state already. The state is accusing them of lying to them for years, saying that they weren't putting anything into the river when in fact they were dumping a lot of this stuff into the river that's possibly linked to cancers and other diseases and things like that. So the state was already mad. Um, you know, the they revoked their permission to dump stuff and uh, the state has sent them more notices saying, hey, you're not really complying with what we told you to do, please do it. Um, for the company, you know, the most that DEQ can do is fine it like $25,000, which is nothing. You know, that's, that's chump change to a large chemical company. Um, so they're not too interested financially in fixing these problems that the state has identified. So now you've got legislators asking about, you know, hey, what can the state do to just shut this plant down? Um, short answer is, you know, not much. Um, they, the state is able to shut things down if there's an imminent threat uh, of you know, health hazards, but because we, don't, we know so little about this chemical, you're not going to find that standard here. And if the state tried to go through other means, you know, it would take months just, you know, the due process that the company has, and then it would be tied up in court for years. Meanwhile, the company would probably still be allowed to continue operating while it was tied up in court. So uh, that kind of went nowhere. So uh, <laughs> dead end there. Uh, we'll have to uh, see if there's other methods the, the state can come up yeah, with. Yeah, and what legislation shows up in the short session, uh, if the House and Senate come to any sort of agreement. Yeah, what, May 16th, I think, is when they're coming Yeah, back, so just like around that. the corner, so there may be some uh, backroom meetings trying to figure out where they can uh, agree to do something in this regard. Yeah, um, I got about five or six weeks to figure something out before the start of that session. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, have a few weeks during session. Yeah. And well, the other environmental-related issue you've been looking at is uh, this uh, issue of the Chatham County chicken plant. Uh, what's the latest on that? Yeah, that's something I reported on a couple weeks ago uh, related to an ethics complaint against House Speaker Tim Moore. Uh, he used to own uh, this uh, chicken plant in Chatham County. At the time he owned it, it was abandoned. It wasn't in use. He, he just bought it for the, the property value and ended up reselling it after a few years uh, for a pretty sizable markup. 
And he's, uh, who knew that was a good investment? Like, maybe <laughs> I should buy up abandoned chicken plants and make some money. Maybe you should. <laughs> uh, he only paid about $85,000 for it and sold it uh, three years later for half a million. Oh, so. that's not bad at all. Although I shouldn't say he, it's a company that company he Company that he's involved with, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, him and a couple from South Carolina co-own this LLC that invested in it. Um, but anyways, uh, I wrote about just the ethics complaint angle with, you know, whether he was involved in some state grants that went to helping facilitate the sale of the property to the new owners, which is Montair Farms, uh, who've got the plant uh, up and running now, and uh, also some environmental you know, issues that the plant had had that you know, maybe he kind of uh, intervened in. He says there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what I was writing about this week. Um, the plant is actually doing, looks like a lot better than it told state officials when they first bought it in 2016. Um, they said then they were going to create 700 jobs. Now it's up to 1,300 jobs. So they're almost doubling their expectation. Uh, apparently, it's a good time to be in the chicken business. Um, and so as part of that, they are uh, buying, or they have already bought uh, this trailer park right next door to the plant, which ironically was where a lot of the um, migrant labor who worked at this plant lived. Uh, there's about 100 people living in the trailer park. Um, and it's bought that. And, uh, you know, obviously, they all need to get out because the company has plans to pave it over. Um, and so these people are very scared. Uh, I was over there in the in the park uh, earlier this week with one of our videographers doing some interviews with people and, you know, just, you know, hearing them tell their story. And they're all basically afraid that they're going to be homeless. Uh, you know, like I said, a lot of them are migrants, uh, you know, working in, you know, the chicken plant before it closed down, which obviously does not pay super well. They had all bought their trailers, but the trailers are too old to move to new lots. And so they're essentially going to have to just, you know, throw this investment of theirs into the trash. It's, you know, there's nothing to do with it. And so they were at the Chatham County Commissioner's meeting just you know, begging the county officials, you know, please help us work with this plant, help us get more financial compensation. Uh, the plant has given them uh, five months of rent-free living, uh, but for people who own their trailer and only rented the lot, that's only $200 a month. So that, you know, five months, that's around $1,500. So they're saying that's not, you know, that doesn't compare to the eight or $10,000 that we've sunk into these trailers, and then we're going to have to go and find, you know, a new place to live. So the county commissioners were actually, you know, they seemed pretty upset that they were even getting involved in this whole thing. And, you know, people were saying, hey, look, you know, you guys gave this company over a million dollars in incentives to come here, and can't you help us out? You know, what we're asking for comes out to less than $100,000. You know, just please help us not be homeless. There's a lot of, you know, single moms living there, young children living there, retirees living there. And so they're all just really worried that they're going to be out on the streets. So we'll see what's going to happen there. We're recording this on Friday, and apparently the, uh, the company and advocates for the neighbors were uh, supposed to be in discussions today. So I'll, uh, I'll text my sources and see what's going on after we get done uh, <laughs> recording all this right, podcast. Yeah, we'll and see what happens next with that story. That should be an interesting one to watch. Uh, lastly, I wanted to get into a little bit of the uh, political dynamics that we touched on earlier towards the uh, upcoming uh, election this year. Andy, you went to this uh, event that the NC Democrats had where they rolled out some uh, new numbers that they put together. Um, is this pretty much on par with the uh, uh, stats we heard in uh, Republican memo gate last week where uh, a lot of uh, races that weren't thought to be competitive or are supposedly going to be competitive come November? 
It was very much like that. And in fact, the Democrats mentioned that memo at the end of their presentation. They said, here are all the races that we polled, all the districts that we polled, 46, I believe there were, all controlled by Republicans, and here's how well we are doing under on a generic ballot, on a ballot with names of incumbents, and uh, there was another question, but I can't remember what it was. Anyway, and they ended it with, but don't take our word for it. Look at this leaked memo from yeah. the House Caucus political yeah. director. It's not often you see the, Republic, uh, the Democrats citing the Republicans for their um, statistics, but uh, in this case, uh, they're having fun with that. That's right. They have, um, I'm looking at my notes here, they have about a dozen that are, a dozen districts currently held by Republicans that are, they now consider to be Democrat-leaning. Oh, I'm sorry. They say Democrat-leading. They have another dozen or so that they consider on the bubble, uh, and this includes names like uh, Larry Pittman, uh, Michelle. Is it Michelle Presnell? Michelle Presnell from uh, um, up in the mountains somewhere. John Hardister, uh, Beverly Boswell, who we mentioned earlier. Um, a lot of uh, people you would think are in safe Republican districts. Yeah, that they of now rural consider- districts, not not in the urban suburban areas where you often see competitive races right and that that was the house on on the senate side they have uh eight eight republican held districts where they believe a democrat to be leading in the polls and then they have another five including dan bishop uh rick gunn bob steinberg and strong republican areas that they believe to be what they called on the bubble uh for democrats and then they said they're looking into districts um, in the House and Senate, like uh, of, let's see, Rabin uh, in the Senate and Speciali and uh, even David Lewis in Harnett County. They didn't say they would target those people, but they said the polling, they did better than expected. And so they're going to uh, investigate, res- do more research on whether they should spend time and energy in those districts that once thought to be you know, Republican strongholds. Yeah, they got candidates everywhere, so I guess it's just a matter of where they figure they've got strong candidates and the polling looks like it's worth throwing some money at. One thing they said that was interesting was that, and this may maybe isn't a surprise to any of our listeners, but that anger is the greatest motivator. They said Republicans took legislatures across the country. They won seats in, the, in Congress. They won the presidency based on anger over Obama. And that well, they believe that that swung back in their favor at this point um, because of anger over Trump. Yeah, and you certainly can see that in my Twitter feed, so there's that. Um, Well, here's something that we may not have considered, though. Have they considered the Jill Stein effect in this year's election? The Jill Stein effect? No. We'll have to ask Morgan Jackson and Robert Howard those things. Yeah, so uh, this is my little segue into the story I had in today's Insider about the NC Green Party. Uh, They are in the process, now that the State Board of Elections is back in business, of uh, seeking ballot access in North Carolina. There was a law that passed last year. It offered it when it lowered the threshold for uh, petitions to get on the ballot in North Carolina as a third party. Um, but it also offered another path for parties that have a lot of uh, ballot access in other states. If you have, I think it's 70 percent of other states where your party had ballot access in the last presidential race, uh, you automatically can get it in North Carolina. And there's only one party that fits that bill, and it's the North Carolina Green Party. 
because ultimately, you know, they had a lot of candidates or uh, states where Jill Stein was a, a vi- available choice. I don't know a viable choice uh, back in 2016, uh, and they plan to uh, once they get that ballot access, hold a convention probably in July uh, to nominate candidates for legislature, Congress, perhaps some other offices. Uh, and so the question is, does that play a spoiler effect for the Democrats? Because people who vote Green Party often are people who are left-leaning who might otherwise pick the Democrats. Um, Especially in eastern North Carolina where the pipeline is going in. Yeah, and so that, it'll be interesting to see where the Green Party has candidates. I would assume that they're, most of their people probably live in urban areas, but there may be some out in the eastern area. I don't know how successfully they'll be at recruiting candidates at sort of a late juncture, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if they're, they've got enough candidates to really be a, a player uh, on the, the sort of statewide dynamics for the legislature. I just looked up the numbers while you were talking about this, and in the 2016 election here in North Carolina, Jill Stein got a little over 12,000 votes, uh, which was only about a quarter of the number of people who voted for a write-in candidate, and about a tenth of the number, 130,000 people voted for Gary Johnson. Okay, so yeah, the Libertarians did a little bit better um, in that sense. Of course, they actually had his name on the ballot, and will continue to have ballot access this year. A couple other parties are in the works of going through the petition process. Uh, Most of them haven't gotten very far. I think the furthest uh, along is the Constitution Party that's got a couple thousand uh, signatures on their way to the goal, which I think is around 11,000 you need to get. Uh, And then some interesting parties. There's a progressive party that I talked to that sounds like they're sort of the uh, Bernie Sanders-type folks who are trying to get a party going on the third party standpoint. There's also the Whig Party of North Carolina. Um, you might remember the Whig Party from the 1800s. Um, <laughs> such great presidents as uh, Zachary Taylor and Millard Fillmore, if my history is correct. Uh, they have returned um, in a slightly new form uh, as of, I think, 2007, uh, handling some uh, electoral uh, reform issues. Uh, they want balanced budget, various other things. Um, they're starting uh, in North Carolina and about to get a uh, student chapter up and running at UNC Charlotte according to the state chair for the uh, North Carolina Whig Party. So that's another fun one to watch. Do you have, do you have to wear a wig? Oh, I hope so. I should have asked that, but uh, it, it, that would make the campaigns much more fun if they went with the powdered wig for that. You know, I think I would take them more seriously if they wore wigs in this case. There's a certain less. gravitas that comes with the old-school powdered wig. Uh, so we'll see if they uh, take that approach, take our advice as they start their campaigns. Uh, and on that note, I think we'll wrap up this segment for Domecast. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute with Headliner of the Week. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? Welcome back to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider, and it's time for everyone's favorite segment on the podcast, Headliner of the Week, where we ask our panelists to name the uh, top headline topic or person uh, that was in the news this past week. Uh, So let's start off with uh, Will Doran. Will, who's your Headliner of the Week? Um, Well, mine is the uh, mustachioed former UN ambassador, John Bolton. Um, People who follow me on Twitter probably know where I'm going with this already. Uh, (laughs) Shout out to my Twitter page. Go follow me. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he was uh, appointed or, uh, you know, uh, nominated, I should say, uh, by Trump to be his national security advisor and uh, to replace H.R. McMaster. Mixed reactions across the board, as with you know most things in national politics. Um, Trump going with the strong names. 
Bolton, McMaster. <laughs> Mad Dog Mattis. He's still exactly. around, right? He hasn't been fired yet? Okay. I don't think so. Not yeah. yet. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, so I shared my own personal story of John Bolton, which was in the 2016 election, I had uh, uh, written for PolitiFact a fact check on an ad in the Deborah Ross, Richard Burr Senate race uh, in which uh, John Bolton's super PAC that he has, uh, which I never knew was a thing until then. Yeah. Uh, and was really concerned about a North Carolina U.S. Senate race for some right. reason. Right, uh, put out an ad in favor of Burr. Um, I think, you know, we were a swing state. Obviously, Burr is a very important uh, senator to the Republican Party. He leads, you know, the very powerful Intel Committee. So Bolton's a big fan of his um, and didn't want uh, Deborah Ross in the Senate. So he put out this ad basically attacking Deborah Ross for her views on the uh, Iran nuclear deal, uh, which Bolton is a big opponent of. Uh, a lot of people are saying that's probably going to get torn up now that he is uh, going to be in the White House, but we'll see what happens to that. Anyways, um, so I rated his ad half true because um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was kind of based in truth, but made some kind of inflammatory stuff that was just not at all accurate. So we gave it a half true. Um, and so I get a call the next day from former Ambassador John Bolton. Not the spokesman, who I guess you talked to in the fact check, but Bolton himself. Right, right. When I when I was asking them for proof of the claims, uh, you know, I emailed and just you know heard from the yeah the guy who, who was the spokesman for the thing. But then John Bolton himself calls us up and is just ranting and raving about how terrible it is that we wrote this fact check. And, and so he thought it was, uh, he disagreed with the ruling, as people often do with PolitiFact, right? No, no. Uh, that, those are most of the calls I get. You know, people <laughs> saying, oh, you missed this, or you got this wrong, or, you know. This should be true, or mostly true at the least. Exactly. Yeah. No, he had, and that was what I was worried about, because obviously, you know, when we're assigning a ruling something, we want to be as accurate as possible. He had no issue with any of the things that we said. Uh, he didn't think anything that we said was wrong was really right, or vice versa. He just didn't think that there should be fact-checking and was disappointed that his TV ad had gotten fact-checked. You know, he, he was like, I paid for this, put it on TV, that should be the end of it. Yeah, how, uh, how dare you come back and try to figure out the facts of this? What are facts? Why are they important? Why should you care? Go away. Right, right. So um, in that sense, he will fit in very well in this White House, um, and uh, I'm sure that's not the reason why uh, Trump picked him for his national security advisor, but I just felt like sharing that little uh, John Bolton anecdote of my own. All right, John Bolton in the hat for his uh, new job and also his uh, uh, pro-war on facts standpoint, uh, at least against the uh, folks at PolitiFact uh, who were fact-checking him several years back. Uh, Some might say he'll fit right in. Yeah, so thanks for that, Will. Uh, We'll go next to uh, Andy Spay. Andy, who's your headliner? I'm going to go with Betsy DeVos, the education secretary. Uh, She had what many believe to be an an embarrassing uh, interview with 60 Minutes a little over a week ago, or maybe it was this past Sunday, no, two Sundays ago, uh, where she faced questions about uh, basic education principles and whether or not Michigan schools were doing well and just stumbled around. Um, And uh, Saturday Night Night Live, as they do, uh, brought in Kate McKinnon to impersonate Betsy DeVos. And uh, in her impersonation, she was asked what she said, you know, I believe in states' rights. Every state is unique. Wyoming has a lot of bears. There are many potential grizzlies, I believe was her exact quote. And so they need a school for bears. And in Louisiana, she said there should be crossing guards for crocodiles or yeah. 
Crocodile uh, crossing croc- guard. Excuse me, that's right. Croc- Although the crocodiles could probably use a crossing guard when they cross the road in Louisiana. I'm maybe. sure they uh, wouldn't be opposed. Yeah. And then she said, and North Carolina just stopped being trans. And, of course, uh, that's sort of a reference to HB2, which, as many of our listeners remember, uh, blocked or banned uh, transgender people from using the bathroom of their choice, uh, passed in 2016, mostly repealed in 2017, as well as uh, DeVos, I think it was last February, rolling back the Obama administration um, memo that instructed... I think schools across the country to allow students, it, it was either to allow students to use the bathroom of their choice or to inform school districts that there wasn't a, a definitive ruling, so they should sort of stay out of it. I can't remember. The yeah, it was ruling. something along those lines. But yeah, DeVos has been wading into that contentious debate over school bathroom use for transgender students. Right. And so naturally, Saturday Night Live made fun of her and uh, this fake DeVos and, 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 reference North Carolina not in a great way. I'm sure yeah. many of our uh, elected leaders were rolling their eyes and saying, yeah, I, thought, so, I thought we were over this. Yeah, a sign that North Carolina and the, the national mindset still associated with HB2, even though the uh, bill, the original version of the bill was repealed and the talk, at least within the state, has sort of died off. Nationally, we're still known for that, and Saturday Night Live a sign of that. Right. All right, so Betsy DeVos slash Kate McKinnon uh, in the hat for headliner from Andy. And we'll go next to uh, Danielle Shimtob. Uh, Danielle, who's your headliner, or what is your headliner of the week? Yeah, so I'm going to pick the headliner that has not been in the headlines, but that should be in the headlines, which is um, Puerto Rico. I just spent a week there for a reporting trip for my class at um, University of North Carolina. And there's still so much need there um, just beyond like the power issues obviously everybody said you know when when is everybody going to get power there's still people that don't have power but i spent a week following around a medical brigade it's called initiativa comunitaria it was all these volunteers trying to go around different towns in the island and solve you know different medical needs and you know there's really there i saw a lot of you know really tough things obviously you know people trying their best to help but there's really a lot of mental health crisis still going on there's you know suicides have gone up ptsd stress a lot of people are being left alone because the people who can get out have left Um, a lot of elderly people are on their own now there's still places that don't have consistent access to clean water visited a town in the west that um, had access to clean water some days but other days did not and the day we were there they didn't have it so you know that can obviously create risks for waterborne illnesses with problems with patients who you know um, for example if you don't have power patients who might need um, AC for various things um, need their diabetes um, insulin to be refrigerated things like that so the power and the water impacts can also affect health so and then most importantly there's a big crisis with healthcare providers so there was an exodus of people after the storm of course but that included healthcare providers and that's been going on since before the storm but they really saw this culmination of the crisis when the storm hit and they had so many more needs so you know despite that it was it was definitely inspiring to see people helping each other there but i think it's really important for us to know here like how much left there is to do there still the, the next hurricane season starts in june so they still have a lot of work left and you know it's coming coming quickly. Yeah, it's a rough situation uh, down there in Puerto Rico. And, and you were down there as part of a reporting project with Unity Journalism School. So uh, any preview you want to make of what, what's going to come out of uh, the journalism school's uh, reporting efforts in the coming weeks or months or whenever you guys publish? Yeah, absolutely. So our project is called Aftermath. You can follow us on 
Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, Aftermath UNC. You should be able to find it if you uh, type it in. We are producing a multimedia website with videos and written stories and graphics, all created by students, websites designed by students. You know, every piece of it is created by students in the class, so each have different roles. Um, I was, of course, writing uh, one of the stories, and we have stories about health, pollution, water, power, and um, biodiversity and, the, and how that was impacted. All of it, you know, of course, with the angle of what is next and how it was impacted by the storm. All right. Thanks for that, Danielle. And I'll note that, uh, you know, while Puerto Rico, necessarily a North Carolina politics story, there's always a North Carolina politics connection. Uh, one of the most active voices in this state uh, calling for aid to Puerto Rico is uh, State Representative Chaz Beasley from the Charlotte area, who's uh, been down there a time or two since the storm um, and has been uh, pushing for improvements in disaster relief and aid at the uh, national level. Uh, so always a connection, uh, even if you thought that was uh, not on our normal uh, range of topics, definitely something to, uh, worth thinking about. So uh, last but not least, let's uh, go to Lauren Horish. Lauren, who's uh, your headliner this week? Mine is not a who. Yours is also a what? Yes. Bear with me, people. <laughs> Aging farm equipment. Aging farm equipment. How is yes. that news? <laughs> well, I haven't written the story yet, but what I can tell you is that there's a new proposal coming up in the General Assembly. Um, about how to tax or not tax um, aging farm equipment. So you'll probably remember a month or two ago, I was talking about um, tax abatement for aging tractors. Um, well, now the discussion is all about all aging farm equipment. Um, all farm equipment matters. Yes. <laughs> Farming and ranch equipment, guys. Ooh. Um, so basically what's coming up is they're looking at a new tax schedule um, for the entire state, because what's happening is some counties are taxing um, farm and ranch equipment differently. So you'll have like multiple tax schedules for different sorts of equipment, like for a tractor or for a combine, such and such. Anyway, so now the new proposal is just to have like one single statewide schedule and all farm and ranch equipment will have a 10 year life span or life use. I forget the, the actual term, forgive me, I'm not a farmer anymore. Um, and so, you know, this just helps create uniformity across, you know, all counties and it helps the taxpayers um, not have to fill out multiple forms for county taxes and IRS taxes. So this is just going to help simplify the farmers' lives. And I think that's great. Um, and it's kind of nerdy. And I kind of like talking about farm equipment sometimes, even though I haven't worked Your on rural a farm Minnesota roots come through yeah, sometimes. So I, I helped my grandpa <laughs> on his farm a lot growing up. So it's just kind of fun to think back to, you know, being pulled on a sled you know in the snow with a tractor but yes so aging farm equipment is my headliner of the week all right so we've got aging farm equipment in the hat along with uh puerto rico we've got uh betsy devos and uh kate mckinnon for their uh, saturday night live shout out to north carolina and john bolton for his uh comments about uh politifact's fact checking uh, operation uh, all very very good choices um but a lot of times with headliner it's so, sometimes it's the headline that we're we're not thinking about and uh for that i have to go with uh, puerto rico and, and maybe i'll broaden that a little bit to uh sort of the, the disaster relief needs in general. Uh, North Carolina is still recovering in a lot of areas from Hurricane Matthew, not nearly as uh, devastated as Puerto Rico was from uh, the hurricane last year, uh, but I was down in Seven Springs in Wayne County a couple weeks ago for a story looking at Hurricane Matthew relief, and there are definitely folks still living in RVs outside of their 
largely gutted house waiting for FEMA relief. So there's definitely a need for uh, FEMA to step up its game, both for, for Hurricane Matthew here in North Carolina and absolutely for uh, the folks down in Puerto Rico. Uh, so Danielle is our winner for Headliner this week. And uh, that's all the time we've got for Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.